0: comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at Mainboats.com.
1: And the time is just about 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring.
2: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today we have special guests who I met almost a year ago. They were a group of Acadia senior college students. The name of this group is Portagers. They were studying what they termed as missing voices in history. It was my honor and pleasure to hear some of the essays they had written. These essays were written from the heart, and I must say, they blew me away. I can't think of a better time or place for them to be heard than on this show during the holiday season, a season in which we profess to have peace and love in our hearts and understand the messages their works convey. I will start by introducing the instructor for this group, who I knew from our service together in the Maine State Legislature, Christina Baker. Tina, welcome to Wabanaki Windows.
3: Thank you, Donna.
2: And uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about your group?
3: Yes. Last April, a group of Acadia senior college students gave a presentation at the monthly Coffee Clash at Sips Restaurant in Southwest Harbor. The program, called Voices Yearning to be Heard, focused on the missing voices of history, voices of people who had been left out of the history books that most of us studied in school, histories composed by and about white men who dominated their cultures. Among the groups largely omitted from the text were the indigenous peoples of this country. The class on Native American women had read a number of articles and books that corrected the misinformation taught us in school one of the texts was james lewin's lies my teacher told me if we look indian history squarely in the eye, says lewin we are going to get red eyes but he continues this is our past and we must acknowledge it when we begin to acknowledge the past to really see and feel we are likely to be overwhelmed with sadness and guilt But as Daniel Justice, a, a Cherokee writer, put it at a recent Orono conference, stopping with guilt is like sweeping up smoke with a broom. It doesn't work. If you stop with guilt, it becomes entrenched and eventually it grows into resentment. Acknowledge the guilt, he said, then work for change. In Women of the Dawn, a story of four Wabanaki women, each named Molly, anthropologist Bunny McBride tells us that in portaging from one river valley to another, Wabanakis had to carry their canoes and all other possessions. Everyone knew the value of traveling light and understood that it required leaving some things behind. As a final project in the course, class members wrote their own portages. They recounted their journeys along uncharted waters, determining which old learnings they wished to discard and which new understandings they would choose to carry forward in their next portage. After our class was over, several members continued meeting with Donna Loring to learn more and to work for change. For months, the group had no real name. In our meetings with Donna, we read books, watched films, and continued writing. As a result, our portages have required continual updating, as do our goals. As a group, we will continue to learn, to work on our own racism, and to be allies with Native people. Today, the group has a name. We are Portagers, people with a story, a message, and with new voices of our own, yearning to be heard. Listen now to the portages of four members of our group.
1: I'm Anne Funderburk from Seal Harbor, Maine, and I was a member of Tina's class. When she asked us to write portages, uh, this is what I came up with. I I actually wrote a poem. As a child, I spent every summer with my grandparents in Seal Harbor. My grandfather, George Stebbins, had developed the village as a quiet summer resort for academics, clerics, doctors, artists, and musicians. He became good friends with John Snow, a Passamaquoddy Indian who lived in Northeast Harbor and made native artifacts, which he sold to the rusticators. Being an amateur naturalist, Grandpa asked Mr. Snow to teach him about the fauna and flora of the island. When he wanted a native name for his realty company's first cottage, he asked Mr. Snow who told him, "Mr Stebbins, in our language the name of something tells us about it. What can you tell me about this house?" Grandpa replied, "Well, it is the furthest east on the hill." Mr Snow stopped him right there. "Then we shall call it Wabanaki, which means from the east." Grandpa was both pleased and grateful. Later, after his three children were born between 1904 and 1908, Grandpa asked Mr. Snow to make some little baskets which the children could use to pick blueberries. This Mr. Snow did. He also made a beautiful birch bark log carrier for Grandpa's study fireplace. I was born the year after John Snow died, and as children, my siblings and I used to use these same baskets to go burying. Several years ago, before he died, my father, because he had no grandchildren, gave the baskets to the Abbe Museum, where they are currently on display. A copy of this poem, which I wrote as a portage piece for Tina's class, accompanies the baskets. It traces my journey from the innocence of childhood across the middle years of disillusion into the dawn of hope for Native Americans in my my later years. This poem is called Baskets. When I was little, maybe three, my grandpa made a treat for me. He took me walking in the wood and said he'd show me something good. Yummy blueberries we found growing low next to the ground. To take some home for granny's lunch and for the rest of us to munch, we picked the berries, fat and sweet, for loving family to eat from birch bark baskets shaped and sewn by Passamaquoddy man John Snow, my grandpa's friend. He made them for my aunt and uncle, dad, and more. Small enough for children's hands, these baskets bore in many bands the shapes of leaves and flowers, too, with woodland plants for me to view. Sown with sweet grass, split ash bale, each basket told a different tale of Wabanaki craft and skill. I loved those baskets, always will. As I grew older, then I heard from grown-ups an insulting word about John Snow, my grandpa's friend, because he was an Indian. Folks scorned his art and proud descent; To sneer and mock was their intent. How could they treat John Snow so ill and make derision of his skill? My heart felt sick, my brain on fire. To praise John Snow was my desire. But people said, she does just a kid. She doesn't know how well we're rid of dirty, drunken Indians, she even thinks of them as friends. In age, it is my joy to see rebirth of tribes' identities, the recognition of the right of native peoples to the light. It's time invaders owned the shame which they've heaped upon the tribal name. We must repair the damage done to all the tribes, yes, everyone. Restore the forests, cleanse the streams, bring back the possibility of dreams to live in peace with Mother Earth. Give back each tribe its own true worth, learn stewardship of land and lake, and let First Peoples proudly take their rightful place in nature's plan. Great Spirit, guide us as you can.
4: Betty Worcester, Southwest Harbor. This piece was written as an assignment for our class Native American women in myth and literature. Portage, a noun, the carrying of boats and goods overland between navigable bodies of water, the cost of carrying or transporting. The goal in portage is to travel light and carry only what's necessary. In our travels through the class this last six weeks, I have failed in my portage. My canoe is heavier than when we first started this journey. I discarded a few things, beliefs, and have added many. I discarded lack of knowledge of the Native American people and disinterest and apathy to their plight. To my canoe, I have added respect for those who came before us, anger at the manner they were and still are treated, and an interest in their ancestral explanations of history and evolution through their myths and storytelling. Perhaps because it was the focus of our class, I particularly admire the, the women we have studied. I admire strong and resilient women. I'm appalled at the treatment of human beings who are our equals and from what I can tell were and are treated worse than other ethnic groups. The word savage comes from the French word of the forest. The white man's definition, according to Webster's Dictionary, is wild and untamed, uncivilized and barbarous, cruel and fierce. I don't think the Native Americans were the savages of American history. The white man was. The Wabanakis had paid dearly for the cost of their portage on the rivers of Maine. Native Americans all over the Americas have paid dearly for their portage through history. Yes, my canoe is heavier than when we first started, but I am glad to carry the extra weight and value the important additions of knowledge and empathy I've made. Before our class on Native American women in myth and literature, I never really paid much attention to Native Americans. It would cross my mind, and I wondered why it would matter to the Indians at school. Mascots were called Redskins. I did read that a hundred years before I graduated from high school in 1965, that Comanche raiding parties still attacked the settlers around Fort Worth. And a hundred years isn't a very long period of time. From our class, I know that Bangor was at one time the lumber capital of the world. Lumber probably funded those huge mansions near downtown. After the class, I realized the lumber came from the land that once belonged to the Wabanaki tribes and that presently many of the Wabanaki live in poverty. I've read out of the depths written about the Indian children that were either placed in residential schools in Canada by their parents because they couldn't care for them or were taken away from their parents by the welfare system. I could barely stand to read more than five or six pages because the innocent and very young children were abused so by the priests and nuns. The God I believe in wouldn't tolerate such treatment of anyone. I cannot believe that someone who represented the Church could treat anyone, much less a child, in such an inhumane manner. I think the Native Americans are entitled to financial settlement for their pain and suffering from the Church, just like those who were sexually abused. The Native Americans are no longer invisible. I see them. I feel for them. I want to help make it better. Who would have thought 12 hours spent in a classroom setting would have been such a life-changing event?
0: My name is Barbara McLeod, and I live on beautiful Mount Desert Island. I'm also very proud to be a trustee of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, whose mission is inspiring new learning about the Wabanaki with every visit. I joined the Abbey originally because I was interested in archaeology, and there is a wonderful collection and ongoing archaeological program at the Abbey. When Robert Abbey began the museum, he called these Stone Age Antiquities and didn't know they had any connection to the tribes living in Maine. Today we know better, and as a trustee, I have learned a lot from the Abbey about the vibrant, ongoing tribal culture in Maine. And this is my portage. I began this journey carrying a sense of guilt, and I carry on with an appreciation of the tribe's spirit of triumph over terrible adversity. It is very hard to admit, but I began this journey with some pity and condescension toward Native women as merely basket makers and I take with me instead a better understanding of their awe-inspiring history, the source of their fierce pride. I'm ashamed to say that the pity was related to a feeling that Native people were somehow slow, and I now realize that the modern American sense of time is so speeded up that it has become fundamentally, culturally, a way of life to do everything all at once and very quickly, so as to get on to the next thing, while Native people are more inclined to use time to be deliberative and fully evaluate, appreciate, and experience the moments that to us just rush by. I began with the familiar American hubris about the supreme value of independence and carry on knowing that collective action is not a sign of primitive culture and weakness, but may well be the true mark of a sustainable and just culture. I began probably not admitting it, thinking that wealth, technology, and a complex division of labor equals civilization. But I now see more clearly that those things are also the source of profound inequalities. I began with the disrespectful inquisitiveness about tribal religion. Just imagine someone saying to me, a Roman Catholic, oh cool, let me try drinking some of that wine. And now understand that Native American beliefs are perhaps the only thing we have left to them unmolested. And if from time to time they choose to reveal to us a little about those beliefs, I feel honored. Most revelatory to me, I see that I began this journey burdened with a confining, linear sense of time and I take with me an appreciation of how the past and the present might exist at the same time, bleed through or echo both in life and in literature with intriguing results. Finally, I began the journey thinking that the native values of connectedness, harmony, obligation, and respect for nature were a valuable environmental ethic worthy of emulation And I now understand that these are much more than an attitude toward the earth, but are a philosophy that permeates native culture in almost every way. And I take with me an aspiration, probably never to be realized, to try to think and feel that way more often.
5: I'm Judy DeLong, and I'm from Bar Harbor. And my portage piece was written in response to the book Women of the Dawn, and it's called Traveling Light. One of my favorite units I taught to first graders was a reading comprehension unit with a particular focus on making connections as you read. Those connections are text-to-text. This book reminds me of another book or author I have read. Text-to-world. Yes, I understand this because what of what I know about the world, and text to self. This is just like something I have experienced in my own life. Becoming more conscious of these connections help children to better understand and become more invested in a story or book. As adult readers, we make these connections consciously or unconsciously in just about everything we read. My connections to all we read for this course include all of the above, but the most significant connections or text to self. The concepts of portage, going from one river to another, traveling light, letting go of some things and keeping others, and the fear that's involved in deciding or not deciding are particularly real for me. I have learned so much from all I have read. I feel that I have literally portaged from the river of unconsciousness to the river of greater awareness. I have left behind a boatload of misinformation, lies, and preconceived notions about Native Americans I have carried with me over the years. I have gained greater respect and admiration for their courage, perseverance, determination, spirituality, and ability to adapt as they have coped with extraordinary loss, political, environmental, and social change, and prejudice. I loved Women of the Dawn. Those stories drew me right in, and I walked those miles through the forests to Canada and back with Molly Matilde, grieved her loss of Jean, saw those giant sailing vessels come into sight in the harbor, and heard those cannons blasting the end of her life as she had known it. I wandered through the woods of Maine with Molly Ockett and her Pigwacket family as she pitched camp over and over as her lands were being swallowed up by settlers. I admired her courage and perseverance as she coped with being torn from her family as a young girl to live with a white family and later watched her own family die in Canada at the hands of the British. And yet, later in life, graciously healed those same people. Her ability to get on with life in the face of so much change and loss was nothing short of miraculous. And then there was Molly Molasses, I would love to have met her. What a clever and strong woman she was. I could see Bangor in Indian Island as she saw it in the early part of her life and feel her pain as she mourned the loss of freedom to move about her world as she once had. It was no wonder she became bitter and hard. I love how she was able, though, to find solace in nature, as did the other Mollies. Last but most impressive was the story of Molly Dallas, without whom the stories would not have been told. Her lifelong commitment to telling the story has made all these women in their lives come alive for generations to come. I traveled with her to New York, away from the familiar, as she danced in that strange city, trying to be someone or something she wasn't. How heart-wrenching it must have been to her le- to have left her Jean. In France, and traveled back alone with her tiny daughter to escape the war unfolding in Europe. How tragic that she lost Joan and eventually had to give up her life as she knew it. How frightening to have been placed in a psychiatric hospital. But what courage and determination it took to let go of the bitterness and return to make such a wonderful contribution to her people. I plan to carry these women and their stories with me on my journey. Their courage, in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds, teaches us all hope, courage, determination, perseverance, and commitment to continue going forward, telling the stories, dispelling the myths and lies, and cherishing and caring for what we have been given. I too am a woman of the dawn. My challenges have a different face in 2011, but as all the Mollies did, I will have to adapt. I hope I have the wisdom to know what to take and what to leave behind, just as they did so many years ago. And may I not let fear keep me from going forward.
6: Hello, I'm uh, Bill Clark, retired park ranger.
7: Hello, I am Sue Stanwood-Clark, retired art therapist. We both live in Southwest Harbor.
6: Pauline Johnson was a Canadian Iroquois and a writer. I had never heard of her until I found one of her short stories in an anthology of American Indian literature. Sue and I condensed a portion of her short story entitled A Red Girl's Reasoning into a Dramatization two voices with two totally different perspectives this story could only have been written by someone with a totally different perspective than mine an indian woman if we listen we can discover our perspectives in a red girl's reasoning Christie and charlie Macdonald discover their different perspectives in the story Christie is a half-breed woman married to a white man they had been married in a christian church ceremony her husband, Charlie, loves her very much and considers her to be a major ornament at public occasions. At a dance, in conversation, Christy casually states that her parents had never been married in a Christian ceremony. Explaining, she says,
7: The marriage was performed by Indian rites. There is no ceremony at all save a feast. The two people just agree to live together only with and for each other. And the man takes his wife to his home, just as you do. There's no ritual to bind them. They need none. An Indian's word was his law in those days, you know.
6: Her husband overheard the conversation but said nothing. Later at home, she knew he was angry. She did not know why. He said, Christy, do you know what you have done?
7: I have angered you, Charlie. Angered
6: me? You have disgraced me, and moreover, you have disgraced yourself and both your parents.
7: Disgraced?
6: Yes, disgraced. You have literally declared to the whole city that your father and mother were never married and that you are the child of, what shall we call it, love? Certainly not legality.
7: Oh, Charlie. How could
6: you do it? How could you do it, Christy, without shame for yourself or for me, let alone your parents? Shame?
7: Why should I be shamed of the rights of my parents any more than you should be ashamed by the customs of yours, of a marriage more sacred and holy than half your white man's mockeries?
6: Father O'Leary has been at the post for nearly twenty years. Why was your father not straight enough to have the ceremony performed when he did get the chance?
7: Do you suppose that my mother would be married according to your white rites after she had been five years a wife and I had been born in the meantime? No, a thousand times I say no. When the priest came with his notions of Christianizing, and talked to them of remarriage by the church, my mother arose, and she said, Never, never, I have never had but this one husband. He has had none but me for wife. And to have you remarry us would be to say as much to the whole world that we had never been married before. You go away. I do not ask that your people be remarried. Talk not so to me. I am married, and you or the church cannot do it or undo it.
6: How little you understand the sanctity of the Christian faith.
7: I know what I do understand. It is that you are hating me. Because I told some of the beautiful customs of my people to Mrs. Stewart and those men.
6: The trouble is that they won't keep their mouths shut. How am I going to take you to Ottawa for the presentation and the opening? I can't understand why your father didn't tell me before we were married. At least I might have warned you never to mention it.
7: Before we were married? Oh, Charlie... Would it have made any difference? God
6: knows.
7: Charlie Macdonald, look up. There was no such time as that before our marriage, for we are not married now.
6: Charlie slowly moved toward her.
7: Stop. Why should I recognize the rights of your nation when you do not acknowledge the rights of mine? How do I know when another nation will come and conquer you just as you have conquered us? According to your own words, my parents should have gone through your church ceremony as well as through an Indian contract According to my words, we should go through an Indian contract as well as through a church marriage. If their union is illegal, so is ours. You are not my husband. You are disgracing and dishonoring me. You are keeping me here, not as your wife, but as your squaw.
6: She snatched off her wedding ring and tossed it across the room.
7: That thing is as empty to me as the Indian rights are to you.
6: He caught her by the wrists. Christine, do you dare to doubt my honor towards you? You whom I should have died for, do you dare to think I have kept you here not as my wife but as my squaw? Oh, God, you are hurting me.
7: You are breaking my arm.
6: Charlie staggered away and flung himself furiously from the room.
7: Oh! Oh, what shall I do? Where shall I go?
6: He loved her. The next morning she was gone forever. A Red Girl's Reasoning by E. Pauline Johnson was first published in 1906 and today may be found in its entirety in Paula Gunn-Allen's anthology entitled Voice of the Turtle, American Indian Literature, 1900 to 1970, published by Ballantine Books in 1994. If we listen, we can hear our own perspectives.
1: I'm Anne Funderburg from Seal Harbor, Maine. A few days ago, I read an article by Peggy McIntosh in the journal Peace and Freedom from the July-August 1989 issue. It was entitled, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Even though it was written more than 20 years ago, it shook me severely, so that I got out my dictionary and looked up the word Privilege. This is what I found. Privilege. Noun. One. A special advantage, immunity, permission, right, or benefit, granted to or enjoyed by an individual, class, or caste. Two. Such a right or advantage, held as a prerogative of status or rank, and exercised to the exclusion or detriment of others. Early the next morning, in a rage, I wrote the following poem. Privilege. A word which means the holders are immune from ordinary hazards of this life, protected from the harsh realities of hunger, want, exclusion, suffering. It is unconsciously assumed by those whose cultures trained them up from infancy. Such privilege is power, darkly veiled, and used to keep the others in their place, denying them the rights of privilege. If I am straight and you are not, I'm privileged. If I am male and you are not, I'm privileged. If I am white and you are not, I'm privileged. But am I willing to accept this fact? Am I prepared to face my racial attitudes and work to root them out like noxious weeds, confessing that I, too, discriminate against non-whites by subtle arrogance? I must reject the bias I was fed and swallowed whole as normal for my kind. When I assume inherent privilege, I sin against God-given humanity.
8: I'm Debbie Messer from Bar Harbor, Maine. As a new member who joined this group last March, I have learned from many voices, the spoken, the hesitant, and the silent. I also read the 1988 article by Peggy McIntosh, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. I learned that in our hierarchical society, that which confers upon me an advantage similarly confers upon others a disadvantage. Thus, my birth as a white person conferred upon me an asset from which I benefit unknowingly and more importantly about which I am usually unaware. Recently I listened as two very knowledgeable and brave Native Indian women explained how they struggle against this white privilege. Denise Altvader and Esther Atian began working with the Judicial Committee in 1998 to reevaluate and investigate the child welfare system in Maine, specifically to give voice for the first time to the mistreatment of Native children. As a result of a subsequent formal report, the state mandated staff trainings to fix the newly revealed problems. Denise and Esther became deeply involved. First in May of 2000, They developed and undertook the training of over 500 state workers, educating them and changing attitudes toward Native children and family units. This included the courage to broach topics such as racism and classism, where white people who set the ideals are often seen as oppressors, while those not born into that group feel oppressed by the expectation to be less like them and more like us. Although many state workers responded favorably to the training, they were most uncomfortable confronting these words. When prejudice is so ingrained, it is often difficult to be silent and listen to the well-formed beliefs in our heads. With hope and commitment, the group persevered, met for yearly summits, and invested themselves in changing the narrative that affects Native children's lives. Consequently, in 2008, This process and the desire for change inspired the natives to draft their own declaration of intent. At a prominent signing ceremony in 2011, Governor LePage signed the declaration, the first collaboration in our country between the state welfare system and the tribes. Current action includes writing the mandate and parameters for the commission, seating five members, collecting testimonies of people affected by the welfare system and establishing community support systems to aid those brave enough to speak. The second major lesson I learned was from Denise's personal struggle with healing, as she was once a young child in this welfare system. As part of her healing process, she recognized not only the need to share her experiences, but also the ramifications that years of mistreatment had on her and her people. For example, many of her tribe had internalized their past griefs, stuffing them far inside. The lands, territories, and languages they lost, the animals white people pillaged, the narrowing of their world did not just go away because white people wrote treaties and placed natives in reservations and schools. Another effect Denise named for us was a behavior she called lateral violence She used the terms inherited guilt and legacy of oppression to explain how parent acted against parent, parent against child, grown child against subsequent children, and grandparents acting out their shame even on their grandchildren. Painfully, she told us of family suicides and drug abuse problems that perpetuate and cycle through families without support or knowledge to face the root causes. Even Denise's own sisters to this moment do not discuss her personal journey of recovery and her self-searching. When she said to us, the trauma was in the taking, we understood that when Americans stripped the natives of their lands or killed all the adults, children were removed by welfare and sent to residential schools. Rested from their homes, children were tortured, physically, sexually, and psychologically abused used as slave labor, and ultimately deprived of their childhoods and cultures. These experiences are documented in Isabel Knockwood's book, Out of the Depths, written about the Shubenagate School in Nova Scotia, which opened in 1890 as an experiment to eradicate the Native American, Indian, Native Indian and save the child. After all, white Americans believed that our way of living was far superior to that of these poor savages, and that furthermore, they needed us to save them so they could be more like white people. These examples of white privilege go deep into our American history. In the early 1900s, Congress federally mandated that all Indian children between the ages of 6 and 16 were to be sent to these residential schools. Although none of these 100 schools existed in Maine, mostly Penobscot Indians of Maine were forced to send their offspring to the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania. This was the last residential school in our country to close. In the aftermath, once released from this child welfare system, who were these whitened children? As they struggled with their new identities, were they now white or Indian? Where could they re-enter a society when, stripped of their cultures, they no longer belonged to any tribe? Even those able to assimilate had no context or clear reality for their lives. With this history in mind, how does a confused child grow into a successful adult, psychological and physical body intact? How does a child or a nation heal from this experience? Strictly forbidden to speak their native languages, sing their songs, use their herbs, or dress in tribal clothes. These are the grown-up children of today, still yearning to be free. Denise spoke of the extensive work required to heal. In one method, she said, they engage in re-evaluation counseling, where they provide a context to just listen to each other. Many seek to find their own humanity for the very first time. Of Denise's own struggle to heal, she said, I had zero idea about how to be happy. The shame and degradation prevented her wholeness, and this lack of wholeness left her unable to relate to reality. Today, despite all this progress, the child welfare system still removes Native children from their parents. More children of color than whites, a disproportionate number, are in welfare settings, and they tend to stay longer. A story was told of a recent newborn who was almost taken from the mother, child welfare at the birth, because there was no belief that the young mother would care for the baby. Fortunately, the grandparents were there and spoke loudly. Since then, the Indians tried to send white people who are visibly wealthy to demonstrate to the white staff that the newborns don't need their welfare system. What change can we, as white people, create? These Indian women ask us to talk with each other and change our narrative. According to Peggy McIntosh, disapproving of the systems won't be enough to change them. To redesign social systems, we need first to acknowledge their colossal, unseen dimensions. So perhaps the more we confront our racism and white privilege, the more visible the native tribes become. And the more visible they become, the more they can take their rightful places in history. Give the Wabanaki, the Penobscot, the Maliseet, the Mi'kmaq, the Abenaki, the Passamaquoddy, their voices. As Denise said, we are only as sick as our toxic secrets. Lessen the power.
9: I'm Paul Frost. I live in Bass Harbor. My poem began to form in July 2008 as I was driving home from Namakana Lake Camps near Mount Katahdin. Yusatanamuk, Roger Paul, Vicki Akins and I had spent the last five days there with 11 Wabanaki students. We were coordinators of the Wabanaki Writers Project which encourages Wabanaki students to write by creating with them a cultural community in a setting close to nature with a Wabanaki artist-in-residence. My trip home to MDI took me along Route 1A, which was being widened to three lanes by a marriage of men and machines. This poem is dedicated to Gisatanamuk. Who nurtured me from cultural shock and resistance to openness? Its title is Dual Worlds. Now, a seedling learner of Wabanaki culture, taking note of unseen possibilities of infinite variety in nature, I come from a world where rocks, dirt, and trees are only rocks and dirt, and trees, a world framed by twos, good or bad, beautiful or ugly. Now pondering possibilities that rocks are ancient ones and dirt is mother. Beginning to understand living with trees as brothers. Now noting infinite arrangements of leaves and needles waving, marking my path home along Route 1A. In this twilight trip, my brothers of all shapes bless me with dances of light and shadow. Shock eclipses joy when I see pyramids of wood chips, brothers, yesterday rooted in Mother Earth, today resting on dirt. My mind returns To transformation in the Namakanta night. Above, tops of pine and spruce, a bowl of stars, a personal window on the universe. Beneath, meadow that I cross and recross in an old man's endless trips between cabin and outhouse. During my last journey through starlit grass, maple leaves before unseen stroke me making eternal connection reverie ends as familiar spruce grows signals driveway turn door open to aspen's ballet lungs filling with ions of salt air and spruce eyes with tears of gratitude stiff limbs now erect shoes on tar then cedar heart connecting, spruce, pine, and birch within, beckon, echoing cedar porches, welcome. In Gisotanmix's way, I exclaim, hello, home. As my winter comes, I pause, shedding decades of book learning, becoming a sapling of new awareness.
1: I'm Anne Funderburk from Seal Harbor, and uh, this is a short poem that I was working on before my mother died, and after she died, I couldn't write for a long time, and it was only when we got back together with our Wabanaki friends and heard them share that I began to thaw out, and I completely rewrote the poem. It's called Existence. Because the clan of whooping cranes is small, with numbers fewer than 100 strong, shall we permit the scientists to say that whooping cranes have now become extinct? Their wild song and joyous mating dance no longer part of nature's bold array? Consider now the Wabanaki tribes, whose membership has dwindled drastically, their their language near erased from human tongues by prohibition harsh, severely forced. Their dance is banned and rituals prescribed. Shall we agree these tribes are now extinct? Who shall decide who is and who is not? I think that ends our, our essays.
2: That's uh, part of the, the, uh, the show. And uh, very, very well done. Um, very, uh, as, uh, as Paul says... Uh, the the flink feeling and thinking uh, writing was uh, was excellent and Tina you your group has uh, has put out a uh, a, a, a self published uh, book and uh, you're continuing to write your uh, your portages and your essays and flinking I guess you might say
3: uh, and uh, tell me about that that process well the the book came out of the presentation at sips restaurant uh, last April that I had mentioned earlier um, at the end of the of listening to these same people, many of them um, read their essays, um, members of the group decided that they should become a book. And um, they gathered together the essays with photographs of of the writers and and photographs sometimes of the of the Indian people, and put them together um, in a book that was published online. I believe it's called Blurg, and the book is available today. One of the best things about it is that it can. With every new printing it is, can be revised, and we have uh, uh, we have already revised and will continue to revise and hope in the future perhaps to have um, a second volume which reflects our journey and on the river and the point to which we 've reached today now does
2: any of the uh, essay readers have uh, have a, a comment that uh, they want to talk about as far as uh Learning in the uh, in the in the class, um, lessons learned or uh, revelations or Anne. Yeah, this is Anne again.
1: Um, I think the thing that has really opened up for me is the need to examine my own unconscious mind. I I did write a poem about opening my mind and all the awful things that I found in there. Uh, some of them were pretty noxious, and uh, I had to sort of uh, get rid of them. And I wrote another one. This was a, a list poem suggested by Cheryl Savageau of the Wabanaki Writers' Workshop. And uh, she said, you know, if you don't want to do European style, do you do list style. So I did. And I did another one, um, opening my grandmother's trunk and all the things I found in that, uh, attitudes that I had absorbed from her. She was British and very imperialistic and very superior attitude. And I had not realized how much, as a child, I'd been influenced by that. So taking this course and continuing to meet with not only my colleagues in the course, but particularly with members of the Penobscot Nation, I am learning to look hard at unconscious assumptions of privilege, uh, things like that. And I find it very exciting that at the age of seventy-three, I can still unlearn old stuff and start learning new stuff.
7: Anybody else want to comment? Um, I was rather reluctant who, to take. No, who, your okay, name? Sue Sue Clark, Southwest oh, Arbor, okay, so. uh, I was very reluctant to take the course because when we lived out west in the National Park Service, it was during the time when AIM took over Alcatraz. It was a time of the Indian uprisings, and I was 100% for all that was going on and um, became aware. Now, I also discovered that even if I did have an ounce or two of uh, Indian blood, wasn't enough out west. I, they just said, "Oh, forget it, Sue." You know, uh, we'll we'll fight our fights. Um, but when I came to recover from being um, an art therapist, we came to um, MDI and to a sacred place, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and other friends of mine also find the mountains and the water and the ocean, and uh, the forest, um, sacred on the island. And I have been to several other sacred places, the Black Hills of South Dakota, the uh, waterfall on the uh, Havasupai have a, have a waterfall, which was particularly special, and a few other places, and that's where I resonate. Um, and this has, I didn't know that the literature existed So that reopened the whole can of worms of becoming and feeling passionate about the situation. And just get me started on yellow dirt, and um, I'll fill you in on uranium and the Navajos and what we've done to them. And I'm proud that GW University have uh, students out there working with them for their rights. Anyone else?
9: Paul, again, I wanted to talk about when I was teaching diversity course at UM, one of my students asked us at what is the most abhorrent characterization of Native Americans in your opinion? And he said, characterizing us as violent. And my my experience in the last seven years with Wabanaki and Wampanoag has been of a people of infinite consideration of others, seeking harmony amongst themselves and um, with nature. Um, And it becomes a journey of wisdom and spiritual enlightenment.
2: Uh, Tina, do you have uh, something that you would like to say we're running kind
3: of? We were near the close. We were near the close. But I found myself, um, though teaching the class, very much a learner. And was also changed throughout the weeks of the course. I realized this a short while ago when I was in Manhattan's lower east side um, touring a restored synagogue over a hundred years old. And as the tour guide explained Explained that as they dug down, they kept finding new layers of white settlers to that area. After which, I asked, And what did you find about the people who were here before the white settlers? She responded that she had never thought of that, but it was a good question. And I realized that question absolutely came out of the class, and that my thinking is changed forever. Um, as I continue opening my eyes and listening to the voices that are now being heard. And I must say that your class, I
2: mentioned your your talk, um, uh, what was it, last week? Two weeks ago, I guess. Uh, talking about unpacking, uh, uh, unpacking white privilege to a friend of mine. And they go, wow, I've never heard that. A, a, a non... Uh, non-native or or totally white group talking about unpacking white privilege we are progressing (laughs) we are Uh, and I also understand that uh, your group uh, is still open for people who are interested who want to stop by Uh, we have uh, a bunch of uh, a list I guess of uh, uh, books and uh, bibliographies that uh, that we will uh, put up on our uh, on the site uh, weiu.org. uh if you uh, look for this show under Webki windows uh, you 'll find whatever contact information we have there, and in closing, I would like to just read one little uh, one little piece that I wrote very very short. might as well add my voice to this group. <laughs> Uh, It's what I wrote many, many years ago. I think when I was just coming out of, uh, when I was just back from Vietnam. And It's a short verse and it's called The Jewel. And I think it fits this group very well. Uh, Love is the jewel so priceless and rare. The jewel we find in our hearts hard to share. Although it has value and sparkles so fair, the jewel is worthless unless it is shared. So I want to uh, thank all of you for coming and for sharing your essays with us today. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. And uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring. And you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, DreamWalk. And I want to thank my very special guest, the group called Portagers, for sharing their feelings and their thoughts. Thank you for joining us today and tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.
1: This is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill. It is time now for our required weekly test of the emergency alert system. This is Just a Test.